Well, we're continuing our study of the book of Romans, and today we are looking at 6 through 11 and wrapping up this intense uh, uh, examination of these verses where the Apostle Paul gives to us a number of results that come to the believer as a result of the justification uh, that comes through faith in Christ. We've seen a number of these, peace with God. We've seen uh, the, the uh, access to the Lord to be in relationship with Him. We see the hope that we have. Uh, even in our sufferings, we rejoice because of the gospel. And today, we're going to think about salvation. Well, hear now God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. May God bless the reading and hearing of his holy word to us this morning. Well, I want to focus in on verses 9 and 10 this morning and to see three things. Uh, first of all, three tenses, three tenses, and then one day, and then two arguments. Three tenses, one day, and three arguments. I was trying to put those in order, one, two, three, but it just didn't work out for me. But hopefully that will help you uh, uh, know where we're going here. What does it mean to be saved? That's the burning question we have before us. Verses 9 and 10 make two uh, somewhat parallel statements about what it means to be saved. Now, one of my favorite films is the 1941 biopic Sergeant York, which is a, a very Hollywooded version of the life of Alvin York, one of the most decorated army soldiers of World War I. Well, York grew up in the mountains of Tennessee, a, a real hillbilly, and when he was younger, he was quite the hellion. He was drinking, he, would be, he was always brawling with someone, uh, until he had an experience similar to Saul on the Damascus Road. I doubt it happened this way, but in the movie, he gets, he gets, uh, he's on his way to kill a man, and he gets struck by lightning, and right by a church that's having a revival meeting. And so he walks in. And he bows before the Lord, and, and the way they put it in the, in the movie is, all the people who talk about him, the great change that came about in his life, they said, he got religion. Alvin York got religion. Now, if your church background is like mine, I didn't grow up Presbyterian. Uh, I grew up in... A, in a tradition that was greatly influenced by the revivalism of the Second Great Awakening. You might refer to what happened to Alvin York as he got saved. 
He got saved. He had this great spiritual experience. And he went from darkness to light in a moment. Literally in a moment when the bolt of lightning hits him. Well, over the years, as I grew in my understanding of the Bible and theology, I came, I, I've come to realize that being saved does not refer to a spiritual experience a person has, but rather the deliverance that God secures for the believer through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus indeed saves. He saves. He rescues or delivers. The word means all those things. He saves, rescues, and delivers his people. Now the question is, what does Jesus save his people from? When the New Testament speaks of salvation, it uses three tenses. Three tenses. Past, present, and future. Believers have been saved in the past. For example, we read this tense in famous verses like Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. But those who put their faith in Jesus are delivered, rescued, saved from the guilt of sin because they've been forgiven by Christ. They have been justified, declared righteous before a holy God. Their sins have been expunged from their record and they have been declared not guilty by God. And that's why the, Paul uses the word reconciled here as well. He uses justified, he uses reconciled in, in verse 10 and in other places in his writings and throughout the New Testament the writers use that word. Believers have been declared righteous so they're no longer at odds with God and so he now welcomes believers into his family. There's been a reconciliation. That which was at odds, uh, the estrangement, the abandonment by God has ended, and now we are welcomed into his presence. We see that back in the earlier verses in this section as well. We have access to God. So believers have been saved from the guilt of sin, but they've also been saved from the curse of the law. Uh, the scriptures talk about that as well in places like Galatians chapter 3. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Well, that applies to all of us. We've all failed to keep the law perfectly, and so we're under a curse. And Paul goes on to say in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So the curse that we're under because of our law-breaking is lifted because of what Christ has done, bearing the curse for us. So not only have believers been saved from the guilt of sin, saved from the curse of the law, they've also been rescued or saved from the dominion of sin. Sin is no longer their master. They're no longer slaves of sin, which is how Paul describes unbelievers in the next chapter, Romans chapter 6. Now, these are just a few of the ways the Bible speaks of salvation in the past tense. So, yes, truly, we are saved if we're putting our faith in Christ. 
But the Bible also speaks of, of salvation in the present tense. Believers are being saved. They're being saved. We see that in a couple of places in 1 Corinthians and in 2 Corinthians. It, uh, it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1.18, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And then in the chapter we looked at on Easter Sunday, 1 Corinthians 15, he begins that chapter by saying, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. You are being saved. Believers are being saved. What that means is that Christ dwells in believers by his Holy Spirit. The Spirit is working in believers to preserve them and sanctify them. He is working to keep his people. No one can snatch them out of God's hands. He holds them fast as they go through the pilgrimage of this life. And he is working to make believers more and more holy, more like Christ who was perfectly holy. And that work goes on through our entire lifetimes. It's kind of like the sculptor who was greatly skilled in working in stone. And so someone asked him one time, how do you take a block of stone and turn it into a, a beautiful statue of a man? And his response was, I just, I just look at the slab and I knock away everything that's not what I'm trying to create. That's what Jesus is doing in our lives. He's knocking away the sin, taking it all away, everything that doesn't look like Christ. It's a long, painful process, but we're being saved. We're, we're, we're in process, and God will complete the work that he's begun in us, as he says in Philippians 1.6. So believers are being saved. He's continuing to deliver us from sin. But there's also a future salvation the Bible speaks of. And that's how Paul is speaking in the verses before us today, in verses 9 and 10. Those who are justified shall be saved in the future. They shall be saved. He says it twice in verse 9 and then in verse, verse 9 and 10. Now, from what? From what are we saved in the future? He tells us directly in verse 9. The wrath of God. The wrath of God. And this brings us to one day. The one day. The great day. The day of judgment. The Westminster Confession of Faith sums up the Bible's teaching well on this not so popular subject. He says, or it says, God has appointed a day wherein he will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ, to whom all power and judgment is given of the Father. In that day, not only the apostate angels shall be judged, but likewise all persons that have lived upon earth shall appear before the tribunal of Christ to give an account of their thoughts, words, and deeds, and to receive according to what they have done in the body, whether good or evil." The end of God's appointing this day is for the manifestation of the glory of his mercy in the eternal salvation of the elect and of his justice 
in the damnation of the reprobate who are wicked and disobedient. For then shall the righteous go into everlasting life and receive the fullness of joy and refreshing which shall come from the presence of the Lord. But the wicked who know not God and obey not the gospel of Jesus Christ shall be cast into eternal torments and be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Now no one likes to think about judgment day. It's a very uncomfortable thought. And there are not many books on the bestseller list dealing with the day of judgment. You go to your local Christian bookstore. You might find chicken soup for the soul, but you're not going to find judgment day for the soul. It might be there, but it's not going to be on the popular list. He's talking about the day of judgment, saved from the wrath of God, where, where God's wrath will be poured out on the unbelievers. And so Paul's talking about that, being saved from the wrath of God that's going to be poured out on those who are with the goats to look at Matthew 25 on the day of judgment. Well, that brings us to the two arguments that are here in verses 9 and 10. So we're thinking about in the future being saved from the wrath of God. What does he specifically say about this? Well, good news. He's sharing some good news with us here in verses 9 and 10. These two statements are two arguments or a case Paul is making. And both statements are the same type of argument. The technical term is uh, an a or a fortiori argument, which means, I had to look this up, I didn't know this off the top of my head, by the way. Uh, The Latin phrase means from the stronger Uh, And and what an a fortiori argument is, is if proposition A is true, the first part of the sentence is true, then proposition B is most certainly true. If, here's an example, if England cannot afford a space program, then certainly Ethiopia can't. It's a how much more argument. If this is true, how much more then is that true? He's making that type of argument in both of these statements, in verse 9 and in verse 10. The how much more argument. Verse 9, let's look at it for a moment. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. In other words... He's saying, if it is true that you have been justified by Christ's death on the cross, then you will most certainly, you can be assured that you will be saved from the wrath of God that will be poured out on the reprobate. The eternal future of the justified is secure. That's what he's saying, and that's good news to us. If we have been justified by his blood, how much more we will certainly be saved from the wrath of God. What a great relief. That might make you want to read a book about Judgment Day when you think about it on those terms. But the argument is further elucidated in verse 10. We get a bit more detail. 
For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. See, this builds on what he was talking about in verses 6 through 8. Well, you know, we were weak, we were sinful, and, and Christ died for us. He didn't make us clean ourselves up and then die for us or look down upon people he thought were worthy and die for them. He looked at sinners who were lost and hopeless and weak, and he died for the ungodly. Yeah, you know, you think about that. A righteous person, you might lay your life down if they're worthy. But that's not what Jesus does. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And verse 10 builds on that idea. It reasons this way. If, if God loves you enough to send his son to die so that he might be reconciled to you, that he might have fellowship with you, he might be able to welcome you into his family, well, now that you are reconciled to him, you will most certainly be saved by the resurrection life of Christ. If you are reconciled to God by the death of Christ, then not only will you be rescued from the wrath of God, you will not have to endure the wrath of God, but something even greater is going to happen. You're going to be raised with Christ to be with the Lord for eternity. And you can rejoice in that. That is a, one of the results of this wonderful justification that Christ has secured. And that's what it means to be saved in the future. Our redemption will be completed. We will be glorified. We will no longer be not only uh, guilty of sin, not only free from the dominion of sin, we will be even free from the presence of sin. There will be no more sin. There will be no more death. There will be no more sorrow. None of these ills that we endure in this cursed world will be there anymore. And that's what it means to be saved in the future. And it means to be that saved for all the future, forever and ever. Now this eternal security is not based on some spiritual experience that you have, like I used to think, or like maybe Alvin York experienced. But it's based upon Jesus Christ and what he did. Jesus saves you. He saved you, he is saving you, and he will save you past, present, and future. It's not based on what you do. Now, having an encounter with Christ or coming to the realization that you can be saved by Christ like this, yes, that's probably going to be an emotional experience, an exciting experience to know that your guilt is gone, that you've been forgiven, and that you are accepted by God, your Creator. But the work is all his. And we see it in the life, of, life and death of Christ. When Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed something very profound. John 12, 27. He goes off by himself and he says, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? 
but for this purpose I have come to this hour. See, the hour he's speaking of is the hour of his death, when he will go to the cross. Jesus was not saved from that hour so that you might be saved from God's wrath. His very purpose in coming to earth was not to be delivered from that hour, but to face that hour and bear upon himself the wrath of God for sin. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What a glorious scripture that is. He became sin embodied and God poured his justice out upon Jesus there on the cross. He bore the wrath of God, the Father, on the cross and he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Isaiah foretold it in Isaiah 53 where it speaks of this suffering servant, this one who has come. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Christ bore it all for us so that we don't have to. We are saved from the wrath of God. Heidelberg Catechism has a, has a wonderful question and a wonderful answer. Heidelberg Catechism number 52 It asks, How does Christ's return to judge the living and the dead comfort you? And the answer is this. In all my distress and persecution, I turn my eyes to the heavens and confidently await as judge the very one who has already stood trial in my place before God and so has removed the whole curse from me. All his enemies and mine, he will condemn to everlasting punishment. But me and all his chosen ones, he will take along with him into the joy and glory of heaven. That's just the most wonderful thing to read. Do you know this comfort today? Do you find comfort in judgment? It's an odd place to find comfort. Do you groan inwardly with all of creation, longing for the day of adoption and redemption? Do you pray as John does at the end of Revelation, Come, Lord Jesus, come. Do you lift up your head with anticipation that your redemption is drawing nigh, as Jesus said in in Luke? Because that day we will certainly be saved from sin, death, and the wrath of God. If you don't know that comfort today, the comfort of knowing and the hope that's there in the future held for you in Christ, Hebrews 7.25 has a, a wonderful encouragement to you. It says, it's been in a discussion on Christ sacrificing himself for sin, 
It says, consequently, because of this, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. He is able to save to the uttermost. I love that. To the uttermost. To the, to the, to the ultimate degree, he is able to save all who draw near to God through him. And as he encourages us in John 6, 37, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. All we must do is call upon the Lord to save us. Come to Jesus and be saved. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we thank you so much for the redemption, the salvation, the deliverance, the rescue that we have through Christ. Lord, as we consider the weight of what he bore there on the cross, we pray, Lord, that it would melt our hardened hearts, that we would repent of our sins, that we would place our trust not in our own meager efforts, but upon you alone for salvation. And Lord, help us to be grateful and to live lives of gratitude, not flirting about with sin, but longing to be like the one who laid his life down for us, to be a true disciple, to follow in his footsteps. Give us grace, we pray. Build up our faith. And if there's anyone who has never embraced Christ as their Lord and Savior today, we pray that they would call upon you who is able to save to the uttermost. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.